Well, hey, welcome here. Can you say a big hello? hello. All right, awesome. And welcome, I uh, want to say a shout out to uh, all of our sites, Central Abbey, East Abbey, Mission Campus, and West Court that are joining us. Before we dive into our message, I get the privilege of giving you an update uh, on our all-in campaign and how we've done so far. Uh, so you will know that at the beginning of May, we launched uh, the first major push uh, towards fundraising for the new building that we've been talking about for over five years. And we told you that in early June, we'd give you an update. And so that's a privilege for me to be able to do that. Let me just remind you a little bit of the background on this in case you have missed it or maybe visiting with us. Uh, the room that we're in right now is nearly 30 years old. And from the very beginning, when this room was opened, Sunday mornings were filled to overflowing. And so in the current world, we're running about 4,500 people that call Northview a regular attender on the weekend in a thousand seat auditorium. How do you do that? Well, the only way you do that is move beyond Saturday, uh, beyond Sunday morning services. So multiple venues, multiple services, and trying to make room for more people. And so five years ago, we began in earnest to talk about this decision to build a larger worship center on the backside of our property here, and then to renovate this room into multi-use space for our midweek ministry. So that's the background, which Lord willing, you will have known all about that. And so we brought you uh, this proposal uh, in May, in April, we voted on it, and then this fundraising campaign early May. Two numbers we put in front of you, $30 million is the uh, estimated cost to build a new building and renovate the old building. And by God's grace, we had 15 million already set aside. So we were halfway there. That's a good thing. You can thank the Lord for that. Awesome. That's great. So coming into this, we put two other numbers in front of you, 15 million and 5 million. What do those mean? Well, obviously the 15 million that we want to raise over the next three years. And then our council of elders decided we wanted to have an additional 5 million of cash and pledges in hand before we started construction. So a total of 20 million so that we could get the building up to lock up stage and not run out of money. We also had two goals. We had a financial goal, obviously, and we had a people goal. So our financial goal was uh, simply to reach the target, and the people goal was to have everybody join in. That's why we called it the all-in campaign. Did you pick up on that yet? All-in. Simple, right? Great. So how have we done so far? Well, you have to wait another week. No, you don't. I got to tell you. So in the last six weeks, from May 1st up and through June 9th, through the generosity of God's people, we have received pledges for, can I give you the number, just over $8 million. Woo! Thank God for that. That's absolutely amazing. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. And what that means is that between what we already had in the bank and what we have pledged now, we're 75% to our target. So in the next three years, as the time goes along, Council of Elders have given the go-ahead to the green light. What does that mean practically? It means our development team, the architects, and uh, the drawers and consultants and all that are working on the plans are doing the final tweaks to the drawings. And so it'll be a while before you see some activity on site. And eventually, we'll tell you about a, a wonderful party to do a groundbreaking and all that kind of stuff. Some of you may wonder, what about that second goal, the people goal? Well, here's an exciting thing, too. I am so encouraged that in the first six weeks, from May 1st up until June 9th, we had nearly 700 individual people say, family units, we're going to give toward this, 680 individual givers. Why am I excited about that? 
Each one of those would re represent three or four people, so over 2,000 people in our church family. The other number is that means that up to 30% of our regular donors have already made a commitment. So you're wondering, how many donors do we have? We have almost 2,200 regular donors. Why I'm encouraged by this is if the first 30% have reached $8 million, then that final $7 million is certainly within reach. And so we want to thank you for your generosity. Uh, we want to pray about it. And then I would just encourage you and invite you. Uh, we'll be coming back to this in the fall again. Uh, but if you're still praying about what part might God want you to, to uh, participate in this, encourage you to do that and then continue to join us in this project. So you know, why don't we stand together? We're going to pray. And on all of our sites, all of our campuses, let's stand, commit this to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll head into our message time. So Father, uh, I want to give you thanks for 43 years of your faithfulness to Northview Church. I thank you for nine couples that met uh, the very first meeting to talk about the dream, just 18 of them, of what it might be like to have a church up in the northwest corner of Abbotsford Clearbrook. And then fast forward through the last 43 years, Lord, we see it as a testimony to your faithfulness to this church. You have brought amazing leaders. You have brought sound teaching and sound theology. And Father, literally hundreds of people have come to faith in Jesus through the ministries of this church. Hundreds of people have gone through the waters of baptism, testifying their allegiance to you, to your church, to your people. And Father, weddings and funerals and midweek ministries and kids' ministries and seniors' ministries and home Bible studies and everything in between, there is so much for us to look back on with grateful hearts. But Father, we also look to the future of our city. And we know that the vast majority of our friends and neighbors don't have any connection to any local church. And we want to be able to continue to reach out with the gospel of Jesus. And so, Lord, as we enter into this new venture, we commit it to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just quicken uh, these plans, these designs, our prayers. And even for the people that we know and love who are currently far from God, that you would be stirring in their hearts that when this building opens, we can fill it with people who need to know the love of Jesus. And so we commit that to you. We thank you for what has been accomplished so far. We commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Great, grab your seats. Okay, we are going to jump into our weekend message, and we are going to start by listening to a song that for many of you will be familiar. So just listen up. I don't know if you can hear me or if you're even there. I don't know if you would listen to a gypsy's prayer Yes, I know I'm just an outcast I shouldn't speak to you Still I see your face and wonder Were you once an outcast too? get to watch the entire movie. <laughs> if you don't recognize that tune, 
It was Disney's modern adaptation of a 200-year-old book by Victor Hugo called The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Victor Hugo was a politician and also an author. He wrote over 50 books in his lifetime. He was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, but he would walk away from his faith as an adult. And yet his writings were still radically affected by the story of the gospel that he remembered from his childhood. And his two most famous works dealt with an issue that cuts deep in the heart of the human psyche, the desire for justice desire for justice. And the Hunchback of Notre Dame tells the story of two oppressed people. Quasimodo, who lived as a prisoner with, within the cathedral of Notre Dame, but also inside the prison of a body that was not regularly formed, a, a body with disabilities, a prisoner in two ways. And Esmeralda, who was sought after for her beauty, exploited because of her physical beauty, but also oppressed because of her ethnic background as part of the Romani people or the derisively called gypsy peoples. Now, even more famous than the Hunchback of Notre Dame was Hugo's 1,500-page Les Miserables. Has anybody in this room read that book? Oh, a few. Awesome. But through many, many film adaptations, and over 14,000 stage productions, the story of Les Miserables has been put in front of millions of people who will never read the book, but are deeply stirred by the story of Jean Valjean, an ex-convict who is seeking to redeem his life, to become a force for good, but somehow is never able to escape his criminal past. And near the end of that book, Hugo says this about the book. The book which the reader has before him at this moment is from one end to the other in its entirety and details, a progress from evil to good, from injustice to justice, from falsehood to truth, from night to day, from corruption to life, from hell to heaven, from nothingness to God. And I would suggest that what makes those books so powerful is because at the core of their storyline is the story of the gospel, the gospel of redemption, the hope that there can be hope for the hopeless. So if you happen to be new this weekend or visiting, you need to know that we are in a five-week series of topical messages. It's not our typical fare, because typically around Northview, what we do is literally verse by verse and chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. But we're taking five weeks to talk about some, uh, some major cultural issues of our day. And to anchor us back into a biblical worldview as we try to navigate the storms of the culture around us. And we're building them on a basic assumption that every person listening to this message has an innate human desire for a good life. Uh, however you would term that. A flourishing life, a blessed life, a, an abundant life, a good life. That innate in the human heart is a desire for flourishing. And then grabbing two very familiar biblical metaphors. The, the metaphor of the tree or the metaphor of the vine. Both planted by streams of water, roots going down deep into the nutrient-rich soil and abundantly fruitful lives and this idea of flourishing and then the question of if that's the kind of life we want, how do we get there? 
How do we build it? And so if you miss the first two weekends, you need to understand they are foundational. If you miss those two weeks, because weeks three, four, and five will not make sense unless you have those foundational messages. We can't talk about the sanctity of life. We can't talk about racism. We can't talk about the path to sexual flourishing without first establishing a foundational starting point. And so we would state humbly that we actually believe that we do not have the answers. That in and of ourselves as human beings, in us we don't have the answers to these massive questions of life. That we actually need a source of authority outside of us. These questions are too big for us to answer from strictly a human point of view. And so we have chosen to intentionally and unapologetically embrace Genesis 1-1, the very first weekend, in the beginning God and the necessity of a theistic worldview. That if we don't start there with a belief that God is in charge, then the rest of the conversation can be thrown out. And the second weekend, the question of Genesis 3 verse 1, did God really say... The oldest battle on earth, the battle for our minds, the battle for truth, the battle for authority, the battle for God's word, and the necessity of a biblically transformed mind. So those two pillars form the foundation for all the other conversations, that God exists, and secondly, that God speaks. So last week, four of our pastors spoke on this important topic of the sanctity of life, that every human life is of incredible worth and dignity and value and worthy of protection. And today, we're going to open the can of worms called racism. One of the age-old issues of humanity from the beginning of human history, and specifically talk about the biblical call to justice for the oppressed, and try to contrast that with today's so-called social justice. The difference between biblical justice and social justice. Now, these are daunting topics, you can imagine. Wouldn't you like to be in my seat right now? And in all of this, I realize, I recognize fully that there are people in the room every weekend who are far more intelligent than I am and who have studied deeply on each of these topics. And I am really thankful that in our congregation, we have many theologically informed and socially engaged people who are deeply, deeply conversant on these topics. But I also recognize that many people are so busy with life that they have not had the time to read widely or to study at length. And all you know is that the world seems to be coming apart at the seams. We're very well aware of the fact that our culture is changing. We know that the winds are shifting and we may, may not be sure entirely why or how. And so this short little five-week series, I simply want to prime the pump to get you thinking and praying and studying and reading and trusting the Holy Spirit to guard us in the days that we have been given. And so today, we're looking at the reality that in a politically charged, racially divided age, when more and more special interest groups are demanding recognition and rights and affirmation and retribution for real and perceived atrocities, historic wrongs that demand to dismantle all that we have known to be normative in the North American cultural context. Now, that's a mouthful, is it not? But let me tell you very simply where we're headed. To remind you of our biblical conviction 
our biblical conviction that the fix to humanity's problems is not a political fix. Because the human problem is not fundamentally a political problem. The inherent problem with the human race is a spiritual problem. And that is why, we'll, while we can agree much with what the cultural critique of our day is, as followers of Jesus, we look to a deeper cause underneath the personal and the systemic issues of our culture. And in doing so, we see that at the core of both our personal crisis and our national crisis, perhaps our global crisis, is actually a spiritual crisis. And the means to dealing with that issue is not simply a political or an ideological fix, but it is ultimately a spiritual fix that can only come from an encounter with the living Christ. And so before we talk about any attempted solutions to the division in the world, we must hear again the story of the gospel. And so this weekend, what I simply want to remind you of is the macro story that we sometimes boil down to four simple words. The words creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You've seen these many, many times. That if you can memorize just those four words, you will trigger in your mind the memory of the entire story of the Bible, the entire story of the gospel. We could add to those words these phrases. Creation tells us what ought to be. As we look back to the original, this is how it should have been. God created the world as good. He saw all he created. It was good. The fall tells us what actually is. The world that we currently live in, the brokenness of our personal lives, the brokenness of our world. Redemption points us to what can be through the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. And restoration is the promise of what ultimately will be. One day it will happen. And so today what I want to remind you of is simply God's plan for this one human family to which we all belong. One human family. And we're going to look at it from three angles. First, understanding God's plan. That's where we'll spend most of our time. Then a little bit of time defining the terms that are being thrown around today. And then talking about the part that we have to play in God's vision. And so first, let me remind you of what you have heard time and time and time and time again from this pulpit as you read the scriptures, the story of the gospel. And what I want to start with is act one and act four in this four-part drama to talk about God's vision for creation, the beginning, and restoration, the end. A look backwards and a look forwards. What ought to be and what will be. So if you go back to the beginning as we have anchored all of these texts in Genesis... Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then the conclusion is, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The original design, what ought to be created in the image of God. Now, if you fast forward into the New Testament, there's an interesting conversation at Athens. The Apostle Paul is preaching to a secular audience about the Creator God. And he says there in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it. Now, this key phrase, next phrase is key, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I just want to make this comment that the Bible tells us there is only one human family, just one human family, from which we all trace our heritage. 
It began with Adam and Eve and all the families, all the nations of their earth are part of this one family. Now, what's fascinating about this in our generation, in our time and place, the day that we live in is that genetic science is catching up to Genesis 1 and 2. Is that not amazing? And already 35 years ago, in January of 1988, Newsweek magazine had a cover story, the title of which said, In Search of Adam and Eve. Talking about, now can I say this word right, mitochondrial DNA. That is the mysteries of DNA and our genetic hardwiring are being uncovered by scientists. The evidence points to one set of human parents. Conclusion? We're all one global family. And so as you look at the hostilities today in our world, the hostilities, whether they're between nations, racial animosity, or ethnic prejudices, or hostilities in your own families or friendships, we need to remind ourselves it's a little bit crazy because we're all part of the same family. We're having a family squabble because there is only one human family, eight billion on the planet, but we're all related. It's like a good Mennonite wedding. We're just distant cousins. (laughs) One human race. That's our heritage. We are cousins to everybody on the planet. Two of the clearest promises that point us forward, not just to our heritage, but also to our future. The promises given in Revelation 5 and 7, they're familiar to you. The lamb that was slain, ransoming for himself, people from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. In Revelation 7, this, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The hymn of heaven, standing with thousands of generations from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. Amen? Amen? We talk about it in the future, and yet we live in this present broken world. And our future as the people of God is a beautiful mosaic. Now, we need to talk about this very, very carefully about what it is and what it is not. Because the future, very clearly, according to the scriptures, is a multi-ethnic Future, we will not apparently lose our nation, kindred, language, and tongue in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be a multilingual kingdom. It will be a multinational future for us. But understand clearly from the scriptures that it is not a multiracial future because there's only one human race, remember? There's just one human race. We're all part of it, even though we have different languages, nations, and tongues. Well, languages and tongues, it's the same thing, but you know what I mean. We will not be melded, we will be melded rather into the kingdom values of God. So in one sense, the future is not a multicultural world because all earthly cultures will be swallowed up into the culture of the kingdom of God. The ruling and reigning cultural values will be the cultural values of God, the kingdom of God. Amen? So Acts 1 and 4 of this four-part play, Creation and Restoration, tell us what ought to be and what will be. But in between, we have the story of what actually is our brokenness and our rebellion, what we call the fall, the story of what actually is. And so in Genesis 3, we have the story of Adam's sin. And in Romans 5, it tells us that Adam's sin is passed down to each one of us and that we are each fatally flawed, so much so that we don't have the ability to say no to sin. We cannot reject 
the temptation to sin, and as a result, we see the chaos in the human world around us. And in Genesis, we see the first relational chaos. When God said, when you sin, you will die, relational death, physical death, eternal death, and Adam and Eve, for the first time in their life, experienced shame. Because up till that time, they were naked and they knew no shame. And then after the sin, they covered their bodies and they hid from one another. And they also hid from God. And ever since, we have been hiding from one another and we've been hiding from God. The relational chaos that entered. And so many passages speak of our brokenness. And on a personal level, how we have turned away from God, how we have forgotten him. Romans 1 is one of the clearest. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. On a personal level, we, we willingly chose to reject God. And for three chapters, Paul unpacks the brokenness of humanity, and then he concludes with these damning words at the beginning of chapter 3, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And you're like, oh my goodness, how is that any encouragement? Well, you got to keep reading. For three chapters, he tells us the condition that we find ourselves in, personally. On a systemic, on a national level, we also are broken. And Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Not only the personal level of brokenness and personal sin, but now national systemic rebellion resulting in the sin that has infected every human institution from the beginning of time. But thanks be to God, the story doesn't end there, right? Because the next act in the play, part three, is the story of redemption and what can be. So Paul goes on in Romans 3 to say this, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. But then he turns to the good news. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. Now, if you want that story in detail, and I know you do, we can just read together through the entire New Testament. Right? But for the sake of time, I chose one of the most powerful accounts of the reconciliation on both the vertical and the horizontal level. And it's a long chunk that we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it opens with the same reminder that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 3. It opens with these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, that's the summary that we're given in Romans chapter 3. But chapter 2, verse 4, everything changes with these words, but God... But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, he saw the mess that we were in and he made us alive. He raised us up for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And then this text gets intensely practical. Because in essence, what this text goes on to say is, now that you've been reconciled to God, this way, on the vertical axis, you now have the ability to be reconciled to one another on the horizontal axis of your life. And so the rest of the chapter goes on to say this. Remember that at one time you, separated from Christ, alienated, strangers, having no hope and without God in the world, that was before, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The vertical axis has been fixed. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then look at this last phrase, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, that is a long text. But you could summarize that text in this way. That through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God on the vertical axis. And through Jesus Christ, we can now have peace with one another on the horizontal axis. Isn't that amazing, the picture of the cross? The vertical and the horizontal. That out of many nations, God is calling one people to himself. This is what can be and this is what should be in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the gospel tells us that humanity's problems of racism, oppression, injustice, and systemic evil are ultimately rooted in personal human sin. The gospel tells us at least three things, that sin corrupts people's hearts. It corrupts all human hearts. We're all in the same sinking boat. We are all equal in our rebellion. There's nobody who has a corner on the market. There is no racial group on the planet who is more sinful than some other racial group. We are all broken by sin. And if you look in the mirror, you know that this is true. But thirdly, we are all also equal in salvation. And Paul goes on to say to the Galatian church, there is now therefore not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. He tears down all the barriers between us. This is God's plan. Okay. In today's world, particularly the world of philosophy and academia, the secular elite do not believe the gospel. And so instead of calling humanity to our need for repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, first with our creator and then with one another, instead we look to blame someone. We look for recrimination, and then it's rinse and repeat. Blame, recrimination, rinse, repeat. Blame, recrimination, and the cycle just continues on because there is no room for a forgiveness metaphor in the secular philosophy. We need a scapegoat on whom we can place our blame. We have to take back power that has been stripped from us by so-called oppressors, and we need to hear these voices and we hear them from both the far left and the far right. Now, I get it. If all of that sounds like a bunch of philosophical gibberish to you, you might wonder what it really means. 
But underneath the umbrella of phrases like these, which you may have seen, social justice, critical race theory, and identity politics, underneath those conversations is the conversation about deconstructing the very fabric of our society, and those conversations are well underway. And we need to understand some definition of terms. Because at the core... These ideologies are seeking to completely overturn the Judeo-Christian values that our Western culture was built upon. And they are dividing us and splintering us into more and more ever-increasing number of factions and enemy tribes. And so when you see that word critical theory, if you see it capitalized, critical theory with capital letters, you need to know that it refers to an established school of philosophical thought that is nearly 100 years old. It started formally back in 1930s with a group of German Marxist thinkers who were called the Frankfurt School. And their aim was to dismantle and deconstruct the ruling class of the day and to liberate or to bring salvation in their language to humans who were enslaved by corrupt political powers. Now, you probably are already with me on this. If you came into Western culture and you, you used the word upfront Marxism, you would know that you would be rejected. And so bold-faced Marxism doesn't sell well in the democratic West. So critical theory sometimes hides behind the more palatable label of social justice, quote-unquote. And words like diversity, equity, inclusion. Now, now listen to those words because all of those words are good words. Diversity, equity, inclusion, if they mean what you think they mean when you first hear them. After all, does anybody in the room want a socially unjust world? No, of course not. It sounds biblical, and yet the terms have been radically redefined. Pitting one minority against another minority in a cat and mouse game of the oppressed and the oppressor, and anyone and everyone who holds a position of power or privilege is by definition an oppressor whose voice must be silenced. And any and every system that has been in societal influence for any length of time is inherently oppressive simply because they've been in power for any length of time. And anyone who is not in power is by very definition a victim in need of salvation. These are how the terms are redefined. Now this is a massive topic. And it's important for us to be aware because as followers of Jesus, one of the main objects of deconstruction is the deconstruction of the Christian faith. And why? Because in the West, for hundreds of years, Christianity has held majority status. And by the very nature that Christianity has had majority status, it is inherently seen then as oppressive, colonial, and triumphalistic, and therefore it must be eradicated. You're pretty sober in this room. My goodness. Should I tell a joke? I have none. The challenge for us as Christians is that there is some truth in every single one of these critiques. And biblically, God calls his people to be agents of reconciliation and justice. But the two agendas have very different starting points and very different destinations. So I'm going to just put up some quotes from an excellent book, Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane. She outlines the differences between 
biblical justice and so-called social justice. And with these four statements, biblical justice unites and uplifts people while social justice pits people against each other as oppressed or oppressors. Biblical justice emphasizes our commonalities, one human race, one humanity. Remember, we are all children of God, created in the image of God, while social justice emphasizes our divisions and our differences. Biblical justice and social justice differ on what constitutes oppression. The very definition of oppression is redefined. And then finally, biblical justice and social justice advocates, advocates differ on the moral responsibility of the individual. Biblical justice would say the starting point is we are all sinful. We are all broken. We are inherently in need of forgiveness. Whereas social justice begins with the point we are all victims, not sinners. And so you might ask the question, well, how is it affecting the day-to-day? In academia, in media, in the culture at large. And so Crane goes on to say this. Social justice advocates would seek to at least four things. Dictate who has the authority to speak. I might as well speak to the elephant in the room. Because according to social justice theory, I have no right to be speaking to you right now. Because as a middle-aged, white, heterosexual, Christian man, I have no voice in today's culture. I am inherently an oppressor. Welcome to church. (laughs) Secondly, they seek to control language and challenge the freedom of speech. They seek to reframe how justice and oppression are understood and finally vilify those who will not align with their views, and therefore we have the advent of the cancel culture. Now, for some in the room, I know I lost you 10 minutes ago. And you might be wondering, why is any of this important? But these are the issues that are critical to us as we live out the Christian faith in the midst of the cultural reality. These are our times, these are our challenges, and these are also our opportunities. And there is no question that the times that we're living in are the most polarized of any other time in our generation's memories. And that these are indeed, and you would testify to this, these are indeed the conversations that are being had in living rooms and lunch rooms and school classrooms and job sites and lecture halls in universities across the land. And the children who are right now in the wings in Sunday school are going to grow up immersed in these issues. And the question is, how do we equip one another for these conversations? What part of hope do we play? And putting the hope in this series, it was and it is, hopefully, to get you thinking, praying, talking, and reading. Now, tons of great resources. We told you we'd put some on the website. Let me remind you of two great Canadian websites, Apologetics Canada, you've seen that many times before, and then one from the Ottawa Valley, Dig and Delve. Both of these are Canadian apologetic sites. They've got tons of great resources. If you don't like to read, they've got tons of videos. Just go there and watch. There's great stuff there. And then two books, particularly on this topic of critical race that I'll put in front of you, Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane and Cynical Theories. Pastor Freddie referred to that here last week by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Those are two great resources. There are many, many more. But before we walk out the doors, we need to remind ourselves, what is our part in God's plan of redemption? As followers of Jesus Christ, as we live on this earth, God has called us to be agents for change in both 
the material world and in the spiritual world. So on the material end, Proverbs 31 says this. In the NIV, I like this translation, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That the call to the Christian community has always been in every generation to stand for those who do not have a voice of their own, to stand for the oppressed, to stand with them, particularly the poor, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless. On the spiritual front, 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Because we know that fundamentally it is not a political solution we need, but a spiritual solution. Amen? Until we are reconciled to God, all of the earthly conversations are for naught. And in the history of the church, there's been so much work that has been done towards human flourishing, justice, and freedom for the oppressed through the people of God. Time does not allow us, but nearly every hospital and orphanage on the planet traces their roots back to a Christendom worldview. The early church made a name for itself in the Roman Empire by caring for the sick, by rescuing babies that had been abandoned to die, by championing the rights of the working class, and by raising the dignity of women and children in ways that were completely unknown in the first and third centuries. And we could spend hours scrolling through history to see all the good that has been done in the name of Jesus Christ. But the questions that we have for us in 2023 are pretty simple. Will we, will we continue to be agents of hope and reconciliation in a world unhinged? Will we be a voice, this is important, will we be a voice for rational and respectful dialogue? Will we not join the fringes that vilify one another on both the left and the right? Will we model biblical Philozenos and not embrace xenophobia. So I put those two Greek words in front of you. Xenophobia, you will know, it is used in our modern language, fear of the stranger. It is what drives racism in our world. We are afraid of those who are not like us. But philozenos is the Greek word hospitality. It literally means love of the stranger. So will we be people who model the love of the one who is not like us? Will we personally, personally repent of racism, classism, sexism, ageism, all the other isms that we might have? And will we embrace a biblical worldview that every human life is valuable to God and therefore should be valuable to us? That the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all equally broken by sin and we are all equally in need of a savior. And so as we seek to bring the values of the kingdom of God to play, to rule today in the here and now, knowing the promises of God that he's going to make all things new, the last chapter of the Bible, what is going to be, what a beautiful promise, the healing of the nations. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of, of God and the lamb down the middle of that great street of the city. On the, each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Why? The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, the bringing us together again, one human race, 
one multi-ethnic family, multinational, multilingual, but brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, oppression runs deep in the human experience. And I think it's why stories like Jean Valjean or Quasimodo and Esmeralda resonate so deeply in the human heart. It's why we watch those movies time and time and time again, because the gospel call to us is there. But deeper still is the gospel message that rings out so beautifully and powerfully. That we serve a God who deeply loves and deeply cares and is deeply moved by the plight of humanity. That he is a God who offers the ultimate fix, reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And that in that act of reconciliation, he's making all things new. And yes, we will live with injustice in this world until the final day comes, but we live in hope that that day is coming. And while we live in hope, we also live as agents of constructive change. So Northview, um, I don't know how you personally feel about these issues. But I know that every single one of us, to one degree or another, are affected by all of these issues. And I also know that we are all equally broken people, equally dignified in the eyes of God. And all I know for sure is that our broken world is longing for a solution to their pain. And the solutions being offered in the marketplace of philosophy and secular ideology cannot hold a candle to the simple message of the gospel of Jesus lived out faithfully, winsomely, patiently, respectfully, and resiliently by the redeemed people of God. And so I'll just ask you two questions and we'll pray. Do you personally need the forgiveness of Jesus? It is available. And secondly, is there someone in your life, personally or even on a societal level, that you need to offer forgiveness and need to ask forgiveness? So let's pray together. Why don't we stand? Father, these are massive issues. And as we said at the top of the hour, we have humbly admitted that we do not have all of the answers in and of ourselves. We can try on a human level to come up with great solutions, but ultimately we need a source of authority outside of ourselves. We need a greater story. We need a greater hope. And so, Father, we would simply come before you and let's start at the macro level and speak of the 8 billion on the planet today, knowing that somehow amazingly, Father, you know every single one of them, that you knit them together in their mother's womb, that they are precious in your sight that you care for each one regardless of the language they speak, the nation they come from, and the cultural realities that they live in. They matter to you. They should matter to us. But then, Father, right close to home in our personal lives, we also need to admit before you, Lord, that every single one of us is broken by sin. And so in that brokenness, we have had attitudes and actions towards those who are not like us that have not honored you, Father, and of those attitudes and actions, we must repent. And we do repent, Father. We ask for your forgiveness when we have put up unnecessary barriers between one of your beloved children. And Father, we ask that you'd restore us. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus, that you've made the way for us to be right with God. And amazingly, through that same gospel, you've opened the door for us to be right with one another on the horizontal level. 
Father, how our nation needs this message. And so we would ask, Lord, by your spirit that you would awaken people that the fix that they are looking for is not a political fix. It's not a philosophical fix. It's not an ideology, but it is a spiritual fix of getting things right with you. And spirit, only you can do that work. And we are pleading with you. We are asking, blow from east to west, north and south, across this nation. Awaken us to our need. Drive us to our knees, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.